For that arrogance, I shall see you dead. Yeah. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. See this? This is my boomstick. Now I swear, the next one of you primates even touches me. Now, let's talk about how I get back home. Prepare for wizardly combat. I want to show you a trick mother showed me when you weren't around. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast covering the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. It's time to party like it's 1974. So way to go, Joe. Stop breathing. <laughs> way, to, way to curry favor with the boss, man. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I didn't really know I was a nose breather. I mean, it's good that I'm doing this. It's like a self-education, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to a very special episode of Spellburn. Tonight, we're joined by a guest who's the primary reason we're all here doing this podcast in the first place. I'm not going to fool around. Without any further ado, the Judges Jay would like to welcome Goodman Games' head honcho and the creator of the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, Joseph Goodman, to the podcast. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Oh, you're welcome. But I really think the only reason you invited me is because my name starts with a J. (laughs) That's absolutely (laughs) correct, sir. Definitely a big positive. Or J's. If you would like to be referred to as Judge Joseph, we can accommodate you, though. That'd be cool. I'm up for that. Okay. I'm Judge Jim, and with me tonight are my best judges forever, Judge Job. Hello. Judge Jeffrey. Hey, everyone. And Judge Jen. Hey, guys. And uh, we're not going to put our special guest this evening through uh, listening to a bunch of emails, so let's just go straight to the tavern. And the first rule of bartending is this. GBTB. Go beyond the book. Go beyond the book. What do you have? Heineken. F*** that. Tavern talk. So, what did we all do in gaming this week? Judge Joseph, would you care to go first? Sure. I think most of my gaming these days qualifies as publishing. Um, every other Monday I have an actual gaming night and then I skip it about every other time. So it really works out to once every fourth Monday. <laughs> and f- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so this week my gaming stuff was more about publishing. Um, we have the chained coffin. Uh, I, literally it's all done. I'm going back and forth with the printer on the final box specs. So that'll go off to the printer soon. 
X-Crawl is actually getting packed this weekend. Um, so those Kickstarters are shipping out. Age of Cthulhu, the final books came in. Um, oh, actually, the coolest thing that I did in gaming this week, I got the printer mock-up for the Judges Guild book. Ooh. Ooh. Nice. Yeah, so this is the coffee table edition that'll be printed large enough to hold a, a page that's that's more than 11 by 17, um, at the size of the original Judges Guild uh, journals. Um, so the printer made a mock-up for me so I could see quite how large it was and quite how heavy it was, and it, it looks awesome. So that was really cool to get in the mail. I'm trying to do the spatial math in my head. That would make it about a third larger than even the Metamorphosis Alpha hardback? Yeah, actually, I... I took a photo where i lined up dcc rpg metamorphosis alpha and then this mock-up and dcc rpg actually looks really tiny next to it like you almost <laughs> have to have a human stand next to it the book's almost as tall as my son like oh wow <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> so goodman games maybe not the biggest publisher but the publisher of the biggest books right <laughs> that's what we're going for yeah awesome yeah it might defy osha requirements like game stores might have to have new standards for handling it must be able to lift seventy five pounds. Right. I'm just I'm just seeing these printer these these ships from China riding really low in the ocean as they get across. <laughs> <laughs> oh lordy! Uh, how about you, Job? Uh well, um, I actually just ran a game. I just got back. Um, get out. An hour, not even a little over an hour ago. Um, yeah. So uh, I was running um, Bride of the Black Mance today oh hey nice uh it went pretty well um awesome yeah the uh well i don't want to give any spoilers away but the ending came out to be pretty hilarious and um our players ended up with or uh, the characters ended up with some permanent corruption uh with their brush with this uh you know otherworldly being at the end so it was a lot of fun gotta love the corruption yeah we have some really awesome characters in the game but um I can't even talk about them because every single one of them has like totally inappropriate name. <laughs> <laughs> one of those games. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, well, let's try and keep it all ages on the podcast. Yeah. How about you, Judge Jeffrey? Let's see. My uh, the online game is we're still playing uh, Swords and Wizardry right now. Uh, last time we went to help a farmer out who turned out to have some sort of giant insect problem. Uh, so we're all still first level. Uh, it, it was a fun little adventure, clearing out a barn and a house of some uh, large, oversized insects. Uh, but but the game the game went really well. Uh, it's been it's been different playing some of the old OSR type stuff like that. It, but it's been a good time. So that game is going well. Sweet, Judge Shin. If my math is right, you just came home from a game too. I did. Uh, we were playing First Ed today, and my dwarven fighter thief died from friendly fire and was reincarnated as an elf. And uh, so there's been much mockery from the family and the rest of the party, and I, I kind of don't even want to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, most importantly, in the past week, a new friendly local gaming store opened, uh, Dungeon Games in Estero, Florida, and Yay. I will be running DCC demos for two to three hour slots like every other Friday now. Rocking good news. And awesome. I think most importantly, um, Judge Jeffrey, you'll be so proud. I actually sandboxed my first game. Yeah, Yay! that's awesome. <laughs> I, saw, <laughs> I saw your post online about that. Um, you know, it was really cool getting to revisit some popular themes and use parts of modules that just haven't fit for this group. I've been able to kind of 
cherry pick a few little things from that. Um, but yeah, it, apparently it it didn't suck, and they want me to do it again next week. So we'll be picking things up, and I still have to get the the report uh, completed and posted. But yeah, it was both um, terrifying and exhilarating all at the same time. I'm so that very proud like of you. To be. Highly recommended. <laughs> I'm so Good, very, I'm glad to hear it went well. I'm so very yes. proud. Yay! <laughs> what about you, Jim? Oh, Lord. Uh, last night, uh, Judge James, uh, my co-judge, ran us through the grand finale of what uh, eventually occurred to us was a post-apocalyptic reskinning of Harley Stroh's Sailors Under the Starless Sea. We've, we, fi- <laughs> we've, we finally figured out what we were in as we were trying to get a grav sled across a cavern full of aphids that uh, would attack you if you didn't have the right pheromone spray on you, which we, of course, at first had not stumbled across. So uh, we had a great time. Um, James is doing a really great job of running the system, and we got to break in the uh, death stamp for next week's DCC tournament event. In other words, lots of us died. <laughs> that stamp is awesome. awesome, by the way. Thank you, sir. Well, I mean, I just based mine on Harley's. That's true. But Harley's was awesome. But yours is tr- it's awesome, too. It's great. Well, I get, We're going to have to get, like, a fleet of those made. <laughs> James had had been just using a big red Sharpie, and he'd hawk a big X across the level zero character sheet. But uh, I can tell you, genuine playtest results, the players much more enjoy the chunk <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> everybody's into it. They're like, "Okay, I died. Do mine." <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's get straight to the meat of the episode and segue over to Mighty Deeds. Wait a second. I have an idea. That's plenty for the both of us. I move for no man. <laughs> Ow. Mighty Joseph, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Uh, usually, uh, it's customary when a guest comes on to uh, start with, how did you start in gaming? Oh, that's a good question. You want, like, the very early days? Right. Sure. Just, yeah, whatever you want to get start. Actually, so, my earliest memory of anything related to D&D was, let's see, my brother had this friend named Wayne, and somehow Wayne and my brother and I got a hold of a D&D book. And this must have been the red one with like the Arrow Otis Sorceress and Dragon on the cover. And we went, I remember we were on the back steps and we had no, like everybody else who played D&D without somebody to teach them, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> right. And we just had a bunch of guys like go fight some monsters. And I thought hit dice on the monster meant that's how many dice you rolled when they attacked. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like every creature I'm willing like 8d8 you know and like the <laughs> always lost and I was like this game sucks like we always lose <laughs> so your very first experience gaming influenced some of your design decisions later in DCC I guess so now that you mentioned it I never connected that dot but yeah uh, we died a lot and then I from there on we did like a campaign with the neighborhood kids once we got going and actually what I remember most about that campaign was it ended with this kid, Baron, who lived across the street from me. His real name was Baron, which was like perfect for D&D. But he had a magic user, and I was the, the 
DM and all the guys got in an argument about, I think it was the Isle of Dread, but somewhere like where they're going to go in their boat or something. And Baron decided to settle it by fireballing the boat and he destroyed the entire, the party's boat. Like it was gone. <laughs> um, and then they couldn't take it anywhere, obviously. And he got to go where he wanted to go. But anyway, the campaign kind of dissolved after that. Those are a couple of the things I remember. <laughs> Oh, and then I had this really cool monster. That's pretty drastic. Gary. Yeah, I know. Where's but Baron Gary, today? He was a two-headed. Uh, he joined the military. <laughs> actually, I actually just talked to him like six months ago. He's in like oh, Iraq wow. or Afghanistan or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, lots of early memories like that, and some crazy monsters I made up and things like that. So uh, somewhere along the way, you segued from playing to actually, hey, I think maybe I want to do this professionally. Yeah, I actually. The professional side started not with role-playing games at all, but with miniatures. I really got into Warhammer 40,000 for several years. And my brother and I set up an 8-foot by 8-foot um, tabletop war game area in my basement. And we would basically spend like you know days down there in the basement running these huge 40K games. And then some other kids from the neighborhood would join in. And we, we went on this huge 40K kick for years. And then we ended up making a bunch of material on our own. Part of it was, you know, when you do that, like you buy miniatures from some other company and you stat them out for 40K. But then part of it was also like creating our own chapters of Space Marines and our own orc tribes and stuff like that. Right. And we assembled this huge volume of material that could be used, you know, could be publishable in theory. And my mom was always on my case to like do something with it. So I wrote a letter to this guy out, actually out in California, who at the time published uh, the only 40K fanzine, which was called Inquisitor. And this is like back, you know, before the internet existed, like... Some of you guys are familiar with that era, where if you wanted to like, you know, publish, you had to like go find something at a store and get lucky, and then write to the guy. And this magazine was willing to publish it, but they're, I was, you know, young and impressionable, but I still thought their terms were terrible. It was, I, if I remember correctly, I had to give away all the rights for perpetuity, and they paid me nothing. And I was like, what do I get out of this? Like, why would I do this? So when I, this was back when I was like seventeen, maybe I started my own magazine, which was called the Dark Library which was a Warhammer 40,000 fanzine. In the first issue, I printed up 200 copies. And I'd just taken this like desktop publishing class in high school. And you know, I sold some copies at a local con. And this game store that I've been going to for decades called The Sword of the Phoenix in Atlanta, they paid me $25 to take out an ad, which I thought was like amazing. Anyway, so I published that magazine. And through that magazine, I started soliciting advertisers for that. And one of the companies I mailed the magazine to uh, for advertisements was actually in need of an editor for their magazine, which was um, kind of a general purpose miniatures magazine. And that company was Heartbreaker Hobbies, and they're based out of Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia. And Heartbreaker Hobbies um, was owned by the guy who had formerly run Games Workshop US, and at the time they were starting up as a sort of another uh, answer to the Games Workshop model of producing miniatures, you know, for sort of certain. It's very different from the D&D-style Ralph Partha model of making miniatures for use of D&D. It was very much that sort of late 80s, early 90s model of making miniatures for use in specific war games. Right. Anyway, so long story short, I ended up getting hired by Heartbreaker and ran their magazine for a couple of years. Then I worked for another company that was doing miniature stuff and did a lot of miniature stuff for a long time. And then somewhere along the way, got interested in doing... Uh, Dinosaur Planet Bronchosaurus Rex, which was the first book ever published by Goodman Games. DM Todd at Gateway Games just got his hands on a copy of that about a month ago, and I got to hold it and look at it. Oh, how fun. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a quirky game. And looking back on it, I would have done a lot of things differently. But that was the first game from Goodman Games, and it actually started as a war game. I wrote it as a tabletop miniatures game using the same concepts, and I had actually pitched it to a number of miniatures companies. 
and none of them wanted to publish it. And then at the time, the D20 boom happened, and that seemed like a better way to go, so I published it as an RPG product. So what year would this have been about, Uh-oh. approximately? I think 2001 probably was when it came out. I think D20, the license, I think, released... Third edition, I think, came out in 2000, if I remember correctly, and I was about a year behind that. Okay. So that's when Goodman Games was created? Yes. I should have run, like, a 10th anniversary sale or something at the 10th anniversary, but I kind of forgot. I'll, I'll catch up on the 15th. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it's kind of weird to do, like, a 13th anniversary sale, which would be this year, but... Well, I mean, if there's a crate of dinosaur planet back in the warehouse somewhere, you and I can talk later. <laughs> there's probably something like my mom's basement somewhere. Well, the, you, you've talked up to the part of Goodman Games history that I that I do know, because uh, coming at it from the other direction, I know that you guys have uh, published all kinds of things. Dragon Mech, Etherscope, uh, X-Crawl, Age of Cthulhu. I mean, that's, I'm, I, if somebody asked me what uh, genre hasn't Goodman covered, I, I would be hard-pressed. Yeah, that's true. We have published a lot. The DCC line has been one of the long-standing ones, in part because I, I think that's the kind of gaming... I mostly... Uh, when I play D&D, like, most of my memories are of just basic dungeon crawling. And so when I, I think I do that stuff the best. Like, that's the part that somehow comes out the best whenever I get involved in it, in terms of what I published. I think the other stuff is in any way less, but... It's just I'm able to pour a little bit more of my heart into it, and I think that comes across in the final product. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's interesting to go back to some of those old, old Dungeon Crawl Classics adventures that were published initially for 3rd edition and then 4th edition as that license became available and see all the seeds of DCC RPG being planted. I mean, there's a level zero character adventure, for example. Oh, yeah. No, you're right. A lot of the ideas started back then, and a lot of the reason DCC RPG came to be was because um, myself and a couple of the other writers who were involved in some of the artists, we kept bumping up against the limitations of uh, the official D&D publishing process, and you know we couldn't quite do what we wanted. We didn't really know what we wanted to do, but we knew that we couldn't exactly do it using first the third edition rule set and then later the fourth edition rule set. Well, it's hard to create a uh, first-level adventure where you go off to another plane and fight a demon, and D&D is written. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like as much as I love Idols of the Rat King, which is the first DCC module, it used to just drive me nuts that you couldn't do anything really cool until you got really a high level. Whereas if you read Appendix N, and part of this was when I decided to read all of Appendix N, like that's when I started realizing how much great fantasy adventure could not be experienced in D&D until you'd spent like a year leveling up your character. But yeah, this, this yeah. Appendix N is like full of everyday human heroes, you know, like people, like a common theme is sort of the... The, you know, the Earthman plucked to go to another place. And it always happens with, like, Joe Earthman. It's not like he's... like At least, like, if you read... Is it Buck Rogers, who was supposed to be, like, a pro football player and got, you know, snatched out to do battle in the stars? At least he was, like, a pro football player, which, like, in D&D terms is, like, what, level five fighter or something? <laughs> you know, like, Edgar Rice Burroughs, it's just, like, a dude who gets sent to Mars, you know? And the is like, the same thing. Like, a lot of these, these stories are not at all... They don't involve leveling up. You get started right away as a low-level guy. That's one of my favorite features about the DCC system. Yeah, me too. I mean, if you want to burn your luck down enough as a first-level mage, you can pull off some pretty good stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I'm sure you've all experienced con games are very different from campaigns when that kind of stuff happens. Uh, without oh, yeah, doubt. Definitely. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just laughing because I blew one of Job's games up that way. Oh, my God. <laughs> if you keep repeating that, it might be true one of these days, Jim. <laughs> All right, sir. You remember it your way, I'll remember it mine. <laughs> no, no, boys. 
So uh, I, I don't know. I'm just going to jump in there and ask uh, something. But, uh, you know, Joseph, uh, uh, can you tell me what OSR stands for? <laughs> OSR? Yeah. Are you saying that because of the oh, online cool. crap storm that's been going on for two weeks? <laughs> yeah. Yes, don't, of course. Don't get Joseph drug into the middle of Is that, man. <laughs> well, dude, I don't mean like go on the internet. Half the time that I, I find out stuff is going on, this is like somebody's like, hey, did you see this? So I'm going to guess old school really fun because I have no knowledge of that, what you refer to. What, what am I stepping into the middle of here? And nothing, really. It's just people uh, like bloggers and other people online have been arguing about what it stands for for weeks now, it seems like. What I rec- when I, so when I published the first DCC module, there was no OSR. At the time I did it, I wrote a letter to Wizards of the Coast and said, I'm going to use your trade dress. Are you okay with this? And at the time, there was only one other publisher who had done that, which was Kinder and Company. And they had done it with product that was, let's see, I believe it was Hackmaster, but I think that was back when they actually had the D&D license because they had published officially licensed D&D product in the third edition era while the rest of us were doing D20. They had the license. And I first wrote to Kinder and I said, are you cool with me using this trade dress, which is very similar to yours, but obviously derived from the early 80s D&D. And they wrote back and said, it's not our trade dress. Go talk to Watsi. Um, so I wrote to Watsi and I said, are you guys cool with me using your trade dress? And they were like, yeah, we don't care. Why would you possibly do that? Uh, <laughs> I still have that email because they were like, why would you ever do such a thing? <laughs> so that's when I went out and published DCC number one. And that was before any of the blogging sites. That was before, I mean, I guess Dragon's Foot might have been around back then. I don't really remember. But the reason I did all this was because Wizards of the Coast released a marketing survey back in uh, like 2001 or 2002, back when Ryan Dancy was there. And they had taken this gigantic poll of all their customers because when you bought the D&D 3rd edition books, it had this little perforated tear-out, you know, mail-back-the-marketing-survey kind of thing. And they actually published the results of that. And you can still find the survey online. But at the time, if you, if you read the results of that survey, and you remember you're reading it, you know, 10 years ago, the D&D market basically consisted of one-third high school students, one-third college-age students, and one-third what I'll call older-than-college-aged. And then if you read their average discretionary income, the high school students, like, on an annual basis, they spent, like, you know, $17. And the college students, on an annual basis, they spent, I forget the amount, but it was, you know, also not much. And then the people who had graduated from college and actually had jobs, on an annual basis, they spent, like, you know, something like 10 times higher than the next tier lower. So I looked at this, and I basically said, okay, there's a third, a third, and a third, and this third clearly has a lot more money. So why don't I make a product that appeals to them? And I happen to be in that third, so it's very easy for me to say, like, what would I like to do? Well, I like Dungeon Crawl. Let's go for that. And that led to me saying, okay, well, what would be familiar to these people? Well, they're old enough to remember the early days of D&D, so let's go for that. You know, it's just a series of kind of marketing-based decisions on, you know, how would you make a product that appeals to a specific kind of customer that I also could sort of engage in and really enjoy producing. But the reason I go down this road is, like, those questions about OSR. Like, essentially, it was me and Kinzer who were there before the entire OSR ever came about, and then we kind of watched the OSR come about, and then we can debate what's happened to it since then. But... It was definitely old school renaissance when it started. That that's where the term came from. Yeah, you're, awesome. You're right cool. on the money, and it's it's interesting to hear the story behind some of what uh, I I think are some very canny marketing decisions early on. It definitely. seems to have worked out. Yeah, there was there was definitely no part of the Watsi survey that said there was a large crowd looking for dinosaur-based Civil War space games, <laughs> <laughs> and that one didn't do quite so well. So I'm curious, Joseph, is you know, is the demographic um, for Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG is is the the split about the same still ten years later or well, almost fifteen? 
I don't know. And actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I have actually done those little perforated survey sheets. Um, so Wizards has not published another survey that I'm aware of, so I don't have any other you know large data set. But when I've published those um, <laughs> those pullout cards, so I did it in let's see, number thirty five, the adventure begins, and I did it in the first like three or six of my fourth edition modules. Um, and this is kind of weird, but for some reason, the only people who ever send them back are prisoners. There's this thing where, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. Like if you're in prison, you can't get on the internet. And so these guys, anything that involves like mail order these days, like there's not a lot of places to do mail order. So, so like years ago, there was this company called, I think it was the hit point. They used to advertise in the back of like every issue of dragon. And back when that was like, um, a thing like dragon magazine used to have all these retailers who would advertise there before we all moved on to the internet but one year i gave them like 2,000 catalogs and i was like can you stuff a goodman games catalog in every you know order you mail out and they're like sure we'll do that so i was like great this is marketing i'll reach all these new customers and apparently like a huge proportion of their mailing list is guys in jail who order stuff by mail order and, and so like i started getting all these letters from some guys in jail and like it you know came also with mail orders but it's like it's really difficult if you're a business set up in the modern era where you have this whole system set up for filling online orders, and then you get all these letters with like cashier's checks that the bank takes two year, two weeks to cash, and I got to like track all this stuff. Anyway, so I diverge, but the point is that the only people who respond to that from my recent experience are surveys. So to answer your question, Job, I could give you a breakdown of the number of prisoners who follow the East Democratic Group, but I only have a larger data set. <laughs> this podcast to sacrifice to the internet gods for a better audio connection with our guest. So, Goodman Games, very popular with the prison population. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and why Why does that make me think of Doug? <laughs> well, that, that, that does lead to an interesting question because uh, there's a core group that's present in Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG now that all came in to your company much earlier. The what would we say the core group is, guys? Doug, Harley, uh, Michael, Michael Curtis, and Dieter. Definitely. How how did all those guys find you at first? Um, that's a good question. Let's see. So a lot of it this this will be a strange comment, but a lot of it actually goes back to Brendan LaSalle, the guy behind Xcrawl, um, because I met him a long, long time ago at like it's actually a, a trade show for one of the distributors. But he wrote DCC number 10, The Sunless Garden, and that was the module that Harley, before Harley had ever done any work for Good Than Games, that was the module that Harley actually picked up off a store shelf. Randomly was in a game store, saw this adventure of Brendan's, and that was what motivated Harley to submit an adventure, which then became DCC number 17, Legacy of the Savage Kings. Um, Oh, very cool. Yeah, so that goes way back, and that was back in the third edition era. And then, of course, Harley's been writing great stuff ever since and has written, I don't know how many adventures since then. And actually, the transition from sort of third to fourth to DCC RPG is a whole story in itself. But to get back to your specific question, which is how do you sort of guys started in there, and then we can cover later sort of, you know, timing and how people moved around and changed roles and changed what they were working on and so on. But um, let's see, Dieter was also from way back when. I am trying to even remember where I first met him. Wasn't he involved with Dragon Mech? He was. Yeah, a lot of these guys, I probably met him in a con at some point early on, but he um, he loves he loves Dragon Mech. Like, he's always trying to get me to republish it and update it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it comes up, like, once every couple months. And, uh, and someday maybe I will, like, when the time is right. But he did some work on the Dragon Mech line. I mean, this must be, I don't even remember when this was, like, 2000, 
2006 or 2007, whenever that was in production. Um, and he did some great writing back then and has been involved in sort of various projects ever since. He wrote a DCC adventure in number in one of the two hardbacks, it was either Adventure Begins or Adventure Continues. Um, and then he's sort of just been involved in different ways all along. Um, and then Michael Curtis, of course, wrote The Dungeon Alphabet. And there's a guy who was right there at the beginning of the OSR doing great work in his blog. And I, I basically randomly stumbled across his blog and was like, this is great. I want to publish this. And it all went from there. And then Doug, I don't remember where I first met Doug. But what I remember was is I was commissioning work for one of my third edition products called the complete guide to Faye, if i remember correctly and somehow i'd met him at a con or somehow connected with him and i went surely it was a back alley in an indianapolis slum (laughs) (laughs) prison survey (laughs) (laughs) actually this is another segue but the troll lords and i used to throw a joint party every year at gen con which we called beer con we did it for five years in a row and the the funniest part of that was that I forget, the first place I held it at was some like respectable establishment where I was in charge of like arranging it, you know, and it was, I forget, but some like normal bar. And then Steve tells me, he's like, Joe, we got the perfect place for the next beer con. It's called the Slippery Noodle. And they, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you guys have been there. It's actually a bar in Indy and they managed to find this Slippery Noodle. So we had beer con for several years there. But the reason I bring this up in relation to Doug is for some reason I associate him with the Slippery Noodle. So maybe I, maybe like Steve brought him along to one of those I don't know. He probably remembers better than me where we actually met, so I'll have to ask him. But what I remember is the way I, did, I got to know him was that I was writing him a contract for this illustration project, and I asked for his address so I could mail him the contract, and he gave me the address, and I was like, I can hand-deliver that. That's like 150 feet from my condo. And wow. At the time I lived in Chicago, and his, he literally <laughs> was one block over and like half a block up, um, and we used to walk our dogs like past his place all the time. And th- one oh, thing led to another, funny. and he obviously, you know, did some some great illustration work, and then we started gaming together, and just sort of we clicked, and we've been working together ever since. This is the stuff of the epic hero's journey, like as you meet all your helpers along the way. Yeah, it's like a tavern <laughs> where you randomly hang out with people, and then eventually you go on an adventure together. That kind of thing. They become your hirelings. <laughs> yes, or partners. I mean, these guys. Technically, they may work for me, but a lot of good in the games would never have been what it is without some of the the key brains involved here. So it's. I don't know. It's more than just a. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean it is no, like I, some I, of the stuff. I they they have you know a lot of latitude in some of what they do. You know, I don't think Harley's ever turned in a project that was on word count or even on topic. Like you know, I <laughs> <laughs> I, I sign them stuff and I get back something. I'm like, this doesn't have anything to do with cloud giants, you know. <laughs> but, but it's always great, you know. It's really good work. Um, I won't tell you what he's supposed to be working on, but he was supposed to be working on something for like a year and he turned in something totally different and it was great. But I was like, where's the thing I actually assigned you? You know, and Doug's the same way. Like half the time I give him assignments, I kind of get back what I asked for. And half the time I get back something that's like totally different, you know, but it's really cool and it works like 99% of the time. But, but you know, there's a lot of sort of whatever you want to call it, creative synergy that works pretty well in the way we work together. Well, now some of us understand the collaborative nature of how you work with writers and artists, but even before I understood that from personal experience, it was easy to see the synergy from the outside, from the very first DCC uh, module published. I mean, That's actually I, great to hear. I walked up, I mean, I didn't know from DCC, I walked up and my first DCC RPG experience was seeing Doug's cover for Sailors Under the Starless Sea and going, oh my God, that's like a pulp magazine from the 50s, picking it up, thumbing through it and going, I got to play this. So that is awesome. And I got to touch on that comment in a number of ways. So first, the collaborative aspect. And this drives some people crazy. And Joe, you experienced this with with one who watches from below. 
Um, yeah. But but the writer sends in something, then we give it to the artists, and they occasionally come back with different ideas on how to illustrate it. Like in Sailors on the Starless Sea, the original Chaos Lord was sort of a black enamel armored. Um, I think of him as kind of a Warhammer fantasy battle sort of Chaos Lord. And Doug came yeah. back with like you know the one eyed flaming blue skulled goat horn demon guy with the three right <laughs> morning star flail, and I was like, dude, this is awesome. But then we had to ask Harley to go back and rewrite a part of the module to tie out to the art. Um, but I think it's worth it. You know, there's this sort of back and forth, and it means it takes longer for me to put out stuff because there's the back and forth. But it, it produces great results. The results but, really speak for themselves. Yeah, no argument here. So and yeah, the I mean, other thing oh, – sorry, go ahead, Joe. Well, I was just going to, you know, give you an accolade in, in that, uh, you know, it, Good, Goodman Games products, I think, are, you know, just actual works of art where um, – you know, a writer and the and the artist together like create something, and that thing that they create together actually is what comes out. Having worked for a bunch of other RPG companies, like I don't know whoever, um, <laughs> <laughs> don't get yourself fired on air, man. A lot of times they, uh, you know, they'll just they rewrite or they take the wording and they uh, change it to whatever you know they're supposed to write to the English, you know, eighth grade level or whatever it is that they're doing, but they, you know. Or they need the, the they need the the text to be kind of generic, so that when they put multiple people stuff together, it kind of seems like it was from the same writer or something like that. And that's always impressed me about Goodman Games products is you know there's I don't know just they just feel more alive to me and interesting. Well, it starts at the top, but then you have to have uh, collaborators and contributors who are willing to work that way, which is not everyone. But uh, Joseph, it goes all the way out to the third party publishing stuff. I mean you can see the dearth of third-party publishing support for this game could have only happened if you were willing to approve those things. You seem to uh, love it when people take your concept and yank it this way or yank it that way. Yeah, there's some folks out there who've had really cool ideas, and I love those ideas. And that's kind of why, I mean, if you look at the publishing history of Gumma Games, it's this sort of uh, a set of what I'll call core fantasy concepts, and then things like Dinosaur Planet and Dragon Mech and Etherscope. An amethyst, you know, like I like it when people take neat ideas and then execute it well, and I'm totally fine with that coming out of the third party guys. Some of them do it really, really well in ways and directions that would certainly have never occurred to me, and I'm I'd love to see that happen. What's the fanzine count up to now? Five separate fanzines? Yeah, <laughs> probably something like that. Yeah. Um, and actually, so Jim, yeah. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which was the pulp feel, and I'm glad you picked up on that. So, it, it, this is a I'm old. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't alive in the 50s, but I'm old enough to know what was going on then. Well, it's funny because people know Appendix N, but they don't always know the art that goes with it. And this is something that's probably – well, so I'll just say it. So like, if you look back at the origin point for a lot of the Appendix N authors, like Robert E. Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, and several of the other guys basically got their start in Weird Tales, which was a magazine published mostly in the 30s. And, I mean, it even goes to the current state, but probably had its you know, boon years in, I think, the 30s. Um, and then there's a set of artists who illustrated that work, um, like Virgil Finley and Margaret Brundage, and a series of mm-hmm. folks who were key in that era and creating the the pulp look. And and that um, concept behind the art, in my mind, goes very hand in hand with the concept behind appendix in literature because it it is the group of artists who originally illustrated a huge chunk of the work that became better known in appendix in. Um, and then it carries forward to the current state, whereas if like those guys um, influenced the generation of like Rory Crinkle and Frank Frazetta and Al Williamson and Lloyd Wood, who were all the guys that in turn illustrated the next generation 
of Robert E. Howard books and all the Edgar Rice Burroughs books. And there's this sort of overlapping waves of artists and writers who kept influencing each other into the future. I mean, into the present state and what became Appendix N. And even like modern state, if you guys read Xenozoic Tales, which is this awesome comic by a guy named Mark Schultz. Sure. It, yeah, it's amazing. Um, but if you read the intro to his latest edition of it, he basically cites as his influence without actually saying Appendix N. He basically cites the majority of the Appendix N sort of key authors and the majority of the illustrators that illustrated those works tracing all the way back to the era of Weird Tales. And so I'm glad you picked up on that because a lot of people get the Appendix N literary influence and don't connect it to the Appendix N sort of visual um, you know, history. And that's something that like Doug and I at one point were trading books on pulp art and we have we own a couple of the same books and for like a certain cover I'll be like, you know, like the one on page seventy two of this book, you know, in this book of pulp illustrations. And I'll be like, oh yeah. But then add in like the color scheme from the one on page fifty four. We have this sort of visual library that we reference as a way to keep it true to that original set of looks. Well, not to keep har- harping on Sailors in the Starless Seas, but that's a yellow background cover. And in the old days, they told us, don't ever do a yellow cover. Yeah, that's it used, right. It used to be a rule. <laughs> but the, but in the 30s and 40s, they did it all the time. Yeah. I love that moment in the uh, uh, Goodman Games seminar at GaryCon this past year when Doug was up speaking to the painting for uh, Perils of the Purple Planet. And, he, and he's describing his choices and he goes and i stuck this in here specifically because it's not in the adventure because the old paperback <laughs> artist always did that yes <laughs> <laughs> and so i love that and i love doing that in adventures so harley for a while was on a kick where and actually i think he did this in bride of the black manse um job since he just played it he would include in every module one what he called a gygaxian word that was real so some like crazy word from you know just like the kind of word that nobody knows unless you look it up. And then he was including one made-up Gygaxian word in every module, like a word that literally he made up, but it sounded really like complicated. You're like, that's got to be a word. It's, it fits the context, and it's probably real. And so unless <laughs> you were like looking up all the complicated words in his modules, like you wouldn't catch it. Um, and then, Joe, I love what you did in Death Ziggurat in Zero-G, which is one of the modules he wrote for Metamorphosis Alpha, where in one of the tables he omitted entry number, I think it was number seven. Seven, yeah, right. Right, because in the original, so many of the original books, but especially in one of the original Metamorphosis Alpha, or I guess the original book, there's a random table that has like no entry number seven. I, I, I love stuff like that. So was that intentional, Job? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did it on purpose. <laughs> no, I totally yeah. did. And I, I put a, there's a sidebar in there that says, yeah, he, I did oh, this okay. on purpose. He didn't just do it, he pointed to it. <laughs> got it, got it. I love those little references, though, to the, you know, the, the classic elements of the old school. Yeah. Well, hey, speaking of which, um, when are people going to start getting their Metamorphosis Alpha books? Do you have any idea? Um, Well, they're on a boat. (laughs) That (laughs) boat is supposed to – so I can't quote a date on air because what happens is if I quote a date, the day after that date, some guy's not going to have a book in his mailbox. He's going to call me and be like, where's my book? You know, and and it could be that his book's actually late. It could be that the whole shipment's late and so on. Right on. Um, so I, I know the date that the book is supposed to arrive, um, and it is in the not-too-distant future. And assuming it arrives and we get what we ordered and everything's fine, then we'll start packing and shipping orders. Um, so the actual Metamorphosis Alpha book should hopefully be in most customers' hand, and by that I mean domestic customers who don't have long lead times, um, hopefully by mid to late November, depending on shipping times and a couple other factors. Um, and then the stretch goals and add-on items are, as you guys know, some of you are proofreading some of them at the final layout stage they'll probably arrive shortly thereafter. The catch on those is originally I was going to package them for one cohesive shipping cost, but the trouble is because the book is so freaking big 
if I actually package it with the modules, it'll actually cost people more in shipping costs because then there's sort of air involved around the edges of the modules because the main hardcover is so much larger than them. So it's actually cheaper to ship them in two separate packages. I would never yeah. grill you on air, Joseph, about when something's going to show up, even though my brother who lives a mile and a half down the road already got his bracelet, his MA bracelet, and I haven't gotten mine yet. I would never do that to you on the air. No, that, that is exactly why I don't quote dates because stuff like that happens. Dude, it's the post office. Like, what am I going to say, you know? Yeah, Jim, we, I got, we mine. got ours. Yeah. Yeah, I got mine. Uh, Bob got his. Screw you guys. I was rolling my dice today. <laughs> I'm going to wait and then I'm going to get a brown bracelet. No, never mind. <laughs> Actually, did anybody get a captain's bracelet yet? Not that I've seen online. Okay. Uh, uh, I got a red one. That's command, right? No, red. The command is red and blue. Yeah, red is security. I think. Oh, security. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the one I got. Yeah, my brother got medical, and I was talking to him about how he could rule one whole level because there's a medical level. Yeah, that's true. But hey, we're we're all jazzed up about it, and you could have all the bracelets on both arms, and Jim Ward will still kill you at the table. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't think that allows you any extra saves. So, so the the add-on modules are those coming out in print? Yeah, those will be print. Oh, cool. All right, cool. Yeah. I thought maybe they're just going to be PDF or something. Um, no, I believe every single one of them is print. Um, I'm trying to go back and yeah, remember if we did PDF no. only for any of them, but I think they're all print. The stretch goals were print. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, the dice are PDF only, though. You have to assemble those at home. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be good for the prisoners. Right, yes, exactly. <laughs> Except we'd have to actually mail them like the templates because they can't print them out from their computers because there's no internet. Oh, that's the reason they explained to us back in the day that we had those damn chits in the homes, basics. It's because it was for the prisoners. It wasn't because it was for the prisoners. It's because they couldn't get the dice. That's probably true. The, the, the dice they were waiting on was on that same boat trying to get across the ocean. <laughs> so I have to tell you, I did an interview with Luzaki recently, which I, I'm going to publish it next year in the Gen Con program guide. He's just he's a hilarious guy, and he's multi-talented in so many ways. But I called him up as like two days ago. We had some follow-up questions. He's like, I can't talk now. I'm about to go clowning. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, I knew he was a magician. <laughs> He's like, well, I got a clown gig. And I'm like, you're also a clown? And apparently, in addition to being a you know, he, he is a professional magician. Like, he knows magic tricks. He also is a publisher. He also manufactures dice. He also is a colonel or a lieutenant colonel or something like that in the military with, like, you know, he can shoot a gun and stuff like that. And he has he was a distributor he was one of the earliest distributors of D&D back in the original distribution chain. On top of that, he's a professional clown. The guy is amazing. Wow. <laughs> That's an interesting skill set. I'm going to bring some balloons to his uh, booth next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for this to be Spellburn, it went all TMZ there for a second. <laughs> he didn't I bring it up in the context of Dice. You know, the guy, like, you know, he was back in the original days of, oh, I didn't tell you that part. Anyway, when you read the interview, he was, like, making dice back in the early days when it was chits, and, like, somebody had to make the dice, and so he did it. Right? He's probably, you know, making polyhedrals out of balloons, and then he's like, wait, I should just make these out of plastic. (laughs) Breaking news. This is a Spellburn exclusive. Luzachi is also a clown. (laughs) (sighs) That's, I, I love my people. That's what I love about this industry because everybody's got three or four professions and, and you think you know somebody and then you find out something like that and you're like, holy cow, you do that too? No, it's true. Well, yeah. yeah that. Well, Jim, <laughs> are, are you, are you going to tell them about your other profession? Uh, there's 20 of them. Which one? Uh, exotic dancer. <laughs> Shh. 
<laughs> Damn it. Different show, different costuming. We've been over this, Job. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just want to know how Job knows that. Were you guys at the same club one night? <laughs> I got nothing to say. <laughs> can, can, I got to pay the rent. What can I say? <laughs> wow, that went off the rails. <laughs> so, uh, Joseph, can you, can you kind of um, d- uh, nail down the point when um, you decided to make DCC line into DCC RPG? Sure. Yeah, that point was after the publication of DCC number, I think it was 63. There's So that's like the whole origin story there would take a long time. But the short version is that in between in between third edition and fifth edition, there was a, a dark era known as fourth edition. That's right. <laughs> From your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but in the era of fourth edition, a lot of things could have gone differently in a lot of ways, including things like the economy. That was back when the recession happened, the Great Recession, as it's now called. And so I think there are a lot of mitigating factors external to just D&D. But it is true that 4th Edition split the gaming community in a big way, and it just didn't sell as well as I think anybody had hoped. And even my experience aligned with that. First couple months of 4th Edition, sales were strong. I was the only guy to get on board of the, the, the sort of 4th Edition license, which eventually became known as the GSL. And the fact that I was the only guy on board probably should have been a warning sign. But shortly after the launch of 4th Edition, sales really slowed down quite a bit. Um, and at the time, the industry was different, and there was no such thing as Kickstarter. So I was heavily dependent on restocks from retailers. And the restocks in the third edition era, especially when I had 50 modules in print, like every month I got these huge reorders of you know the last 49 modules, and it, it sort of kept moving pretty well. But the fourth edition era, the, the retailers just they would bring it in to put it on their shelves, and they just would not reorder. So over time, several things happened, but eventually led me to sort of look at different options for where to go from there. Um, and this was even before Pathfinder. There was like the the beginning kernel of that thing that would become Pathfinder. So you know, options included going the route of where Paizo appeared to be going, but before there was a Pathfinder, um, going out on my own, sort of, and everything in between. Uh, and that so, and then sort of from the business side, take a pause. On the other side of that was um, I'd started reading Appendix in, and it's probably came down to a trip that we all took to the D&D Experience, which was the name of the con that used to be Winter Fantasy and now is D&D Experience. I think this was like 2008, but it was a bunch of us who went, including like me and, let's see, Adrian was there, Aaron was there, Doug was there, Harley was there. I think that might have been the whole crew. And we went there to promote 4th Edition. But we talked a lot about Appendix N at that con and the fact that 4th Edition wasn't clicking personally with many of us. And we talked a lot about the things that we missed from that version of the game. And somehow that con led me to really decide to dive into Appendix N and eventually decide to read the whole thing. And then as a result of that, both Harley and Doug and myself were all sort of experimenting with like different ways to capture what we felt like was missing from 4th Edition. Like In a way, 4th Edition was the catalyst for a DCC RPG because 3rd Edition was close enough to what we liked that we didn't feel the need to search for anything more. But 4th Edition was so different, and it left so many voids I guess I can only speak for myself, but I think they'd probably say something somewhat similar. But for myself, it was just so clearly not where I wanted to go that I felt like I had to look for something else. So yeah, to answer your question about the point in time, that was the point in time where, at least for myself, I started feeling like I had to find something else. And then I tried to sort of corral some of these other guys to go on that trip with me and, and find whatever it was that we felt like we were missing that we sort of needed to, to find in a gaming system. Well, I'm sure lots of us are really glad you did that. I mean, my very first take on the game on first exposure was this is like uh, what D&D would be in some alternate reality where Gary and Dave were still alive and decided they were going to take it back and, and turn it into something modern. That's awesome. 
I had so yeah, the original concept was if if we had the twenty five years of additional game design that we have now, which you know uh, evolved in the D and D third edition um, and the D twenty system, but we were back in the seventies where they were still so clearly, you know, in the primary. I, I call it the primary source stage, like immediately influenced by Appendix N. Not D and D now is like Appendix N watered down by four or five generations. You know, like people don't actually read the original books; they read the stuff that was based on stuff that was based on the books. But you can yeah. see, yeah, if you read the original D and D, like clearly, clearly they were just reading Burroughs like five minutes before because they threw in a yellow man and a green man. You know, um, and. Anyway, so I wanted to go back to exactly what you said, Jim, was if they had just finished reading Appendix N but had access to the game design uh, sort of mechanics that had evolved since then. So you went through a process of uh, publishing the game, and I'm trying to remember the exact chronology. I, ca- I came in l- a little bit after the game was in the rule book, and the first couple of modules were published. Um, and then I remember suddenly there was this uh, DCC road crew thing happening which was the first game I got to play was a direct result of the road crew. Uh, Rick Hull ran, ran us through an adventure here in Cincinnati. Oh, that's great to hear. I'm glad. Thanks to Rick for exposing you, but I'm glad to hear that was the way you first played. That's great. Well, like, like, like every story, I had the book at home, but I only had myself to play with. I couldn't convince anybody to play the game at first. Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, Since that's really kind of a near and dear thing, thing to me, what inspired the road crew for you? Uh, Basically, Exactly what Jim just said, which is games are – it's so easy to learn a game like DCC RPG if you play it, and it's so hard to learn it if you just sit down and read the book. I mean I'm just being honest. Like you don't even need to read the whole book because most of it spells, but the size is intimidating. And for a lot of people, it just doesn't click until they really play it. And so when I went through – you know, the game was launched with a beta stage where we got lots of public playtest feedback. Um, and I think like the beta rules are still floating around on the internet somewhere. And there was enough what I'll call misinterpretation of those rules that it was clear to me that like you had to really play the game to get it. And then I had so many experiences where I would go to – I was running games at like – I was at GaryCon 2 before the game even had a name, running demos of it, <laughs> um, as well as like tons of just little mini cons, mostly in Southern California. But I'd go to these little you know one-off events or I'd run a game at a game store or something – and people would be all opposed to the idea of it when I described it. And they, you know, oh, that's weird. I don't want to play that. You know, what? You roll on a table for magic? That's weird. But then, like, the moment they played it, they, they loved it. And it became obvious to me that all you had to do was play it to enjoy it. So the road crew, the idea behind that was just to create some easy way for people to play the game. Um, because it just gets people on board really quickly once they play it. That it does. I'm glad it worked. That's it, great it, to hear. It, it, it's, it really is brilliant marketing as well. Because Thank then you. they I sit call down. Brilliant, though. I think it's like a no-brainer. Like you make a game, what do you do with it? You play. Like if you if you go back and talk to the guys in the early days of the history, like there was there were no online ads. You know, there were a couple magazines, but it was basically the dragon. There weren't a lot of opportunities to market. Like where you marketed in the early days of the industry were the conventions and the game stores. Um, like which is basically what I'm doing. Like it's I appreciate the kind words, but what I'm doing is basically like you know the original kind of marketing, which is you make a game, let's go play it. Well, it's, yeah, but but by that token, back then there was only one game to go to. That's there true. was only Dungeons and Dragons. You well, know, there there. I'm old enough to go back to the little brown books in AD and D. The first group that taught me to play had been were older college guys who had played in the little brown books, and they had just gotten their hands on a monster manual. And at the, the state of the art then, I would have never ever learned how to play D and D if those guys hadn't shown me. 
with the, with those rule systems and and the little brown books that was the whole initial marketing push that TSR did was just get to Origins, get to Gen Con, and run the game for people. So it's a yeah. nice karma call back to those days. Oh, that's awesome to hear. And there's things I want to do with the road crew too that I just haven't had the time. But I've heard lots of great ideas about how to you know. I mean, it's about playing the game, so how to give people even more incentives to get out playing the game. So if listeners out there, if you have more ideas on that, shoot me a line because I would love to get just more opportunities and more incentives for people to be out there playing games at, at all sorts of places. Well, uh, we haven't asked you any really hard questions yet, so I, I'm going to ask you just one hard question before we okay. get, get out of here for the evening. Um, your uh, nickname online, you're often referred to as the Dark Master. Yeah, I know. You are the <laughs> nicest, uh, most soft-spoken guy i ever met so the only way i can imagine a nickname like that would come about must be the way you actually run games not having sat at your table is, is that is my speculation correct it could be although i don't really know for sure that nickname it happened um in the dcc rpg era it just started getting bandied about and so i really don't even know exactly where it came from but in the early play tests of dcc rpg i mean i killed a lot of characters uh, <laughs> I still remember. So at GaryCon 2, Doug and I showed up. We just kind of drove up from Chicago in his car, and we came in. I think it must have been Wednesday night, but before the con was really open. And we had, like, some beer with us, and we were wandering around the hotel, like, looking for something to do. And the con hadn't even started yet, and we found some guys. And we're like, hey, you guys want to play a game? And they're like, yeah, let's play. And I convinced them to play this, you know, weird game with no name that I was working on. Um, and I killed off, like, almost all of them. But they loved it. Like, they had so much fun. And that's when I was realizing, like, hey, there's something to this game. You know, people seem to really like it. But but to your point, Jim, like, yeah, all I can figure is I just killed off so many people at, like, Gary Khan and other cons that somehow th- that reputation came about. But I don't really know for sure. Oh, just, it, I mean, there's a marked contrast. But let me introduce to you the Dark Master. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it walks I, it, the it, nicest guy on Earth. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I also, I don't give a lot of... I mean, this is the first time I've been on Spellburner. You guys have been on for like two and a half years or something. You know, I don't, maybe just because I hang in the background and don't talk as much in the front. I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. Well, very well we're Jim- glad we got here. <laughs> yep, definitely. Thanks. I appreciate you guys inviting me. Well, hopefully hey. you, can come, you can come back. Yeah, anytime. I'd be happy to. I listen to every episode of the podcast. It's, it's great. You do? Uh-oh. Yeah. So that makes it yeah. all worthwhile right there. Yeah, no, Joe, even the one where you said, was it Bite Me Goodman or something like that? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, Joe's like, shit, you heard that? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Awesome. Oh. I, I think I, I went to a bar before I came onto that podcast that day. Yeah, but in a weird way, that's the kind of, I mean, how do you think Doug talks to me? Like, this is the creative synergy, right? Like, if it's a bunch of people who just did what I wanted to, like, it wouldn't have turned out as cool as it did. That's awesome. Well, we really appreciate you being on the show, sir. Thank you. I appreciate you guys inviting me. Thanks so much for your time. Yep, thank you. That'll Sorry ra- about... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Nope. I, I was headed out. Go ahead if you want to say something. Nope. Saw you, Jim. <laughs> I, 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 had, I had a moment. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope, Joseph, this experience has disabused you of any notions of how we're a professional broadcasting outfit here at Spellburn. Yeah, you guys sound a little more well-oiled on the final production. <laughs> <laughs> that's, all, that's all tricky editing and garage band. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, that'll wrap it up for this episode. <laughs> let's, let's go out on a good note. Um, remember, never split the party unless the party is already split. Bye, everybody. Night, everyone. Night, guys. Bye, everybody. And we're out. <laughs>